we're delighted to welcome uh, Alicia to, to Podchat Live. Thank you so much for getting up early and agreeing to this one. Um, title of the episode is Calcaneal Apophysitis. Um, and because uh, Craig likes these things to try and get as much traffic as possible, we also want to call it Severs or Severs disease. Um, we know that you did your PhD uh, around the topic of calcaneal apophysitis, so we thought, uh, who better to get on and update us all with 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 um, this condition? And we'd love to start with with the, the topic uh, or the debate about the naming, the nomenclature. Um, why should we be calling it Severs or Severs disease? Should we not? Should we care? Uh, do we care enough? Uh, what's your, what's your take and your position on this currently? Uh, look. Um, my, my main thing is about having a common language and making sure that no matter who we're talking to in the sense of a health professional, we're all talking about the same thing. So removing someone's personal name from it and calling it his actual presentation probably allows us to have those conversations. Um, we then start, we were talking just a few minutes ago about the fact that using the word disease for a child can be quite confronting. Um, so actually removing that component of it isn't a bad idea either. Um, we, we were having a bit quick look at what the World Health Organization was saying and they, they're actually saying to remove from, to move away from calling things based on the person who apparently found it or discovered it or diagnosed it for the first time and move it more so towards what's actually presenting in front of you. Um, so yeah, my thing is calcopophysitis, I do call it like that and the kids all giggle and we have a chat about what it is um, and it allows them to get some concept rather than thinking that they're going to die from some horrible disease. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we should care about this, what seems like a, yeah. a, a, a trivial discussion and some people have even referred to it as semantics. It's more than that. We, we should care. We should stop calling mm. it severs worldwide. Yeah, oh, it's, it's the same thing, things like your Island's disease or um, trying to think of some of the others that you might call us. They're, they're, it's a person. It's nothing to do with actually got no idea where it could be painful. So you could be talking to an orthopedic friend or um, a physio and they'll look at you and go, what on earth are you talking about? It's a common language that we're trying to get to make a conversation easier. Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to be a huge battle because I know all my daughter's friends at school, they all know what Severs disease is. You know, and um, it's, yeah, it, it's going to be a challenge. It'll be a generational thing. We'll move through. When, but, when but something so so easy to say as severs and something less easy to say like calcaneal apophysitis, there's, there's, yeah. a, there's a hurdle there immediately, isn't there? But that shouldn't be a hurdle for us as medical professionals. That, that's obvious, mm. isn't it? No. Yeah. And look, allowing the kid to explain it as heel pain. It's, it's as simple as that sometimes because they don't know what they've got and sometimes it can be not be calcopophysitis. Just sometimes heel pain in kids is, is just a good statement as well. Yeah. yeah. Actually, just, just on that, just before we started, I did a quick Google hunt around. I found this little article on the World Health Organization and, and there's a paragraph down here about the naming of diseases. Oh, I've lost it. There we go. Ooh. Oh, damn, sorry. I, um, but it refers back to what we talked about with Mike Stewart about, oh, here it is here. Disease names, the World Health Organization said, may not include geographic locations, people's names, species of animals or food or references to culture, population, industry or occupation, and terms that incite undue fear. Mm. And I think that, you know, that, that, was, that was that whole 
podchat live we did with Mike Stewart on the Nasebic language, and it, you know, it's a really nice link there. Yeah. Um, a nice thing to move on to, given that, you know, you've said not all heel pain in, in a 10-year-old that presents is, is calcaneal apophysitis. Um, yeah. let, let's talk about um, sort of how, how we would clinically assess it. Uh, you know, what, what features? I mean, is it something that that is, you, you know, it's a bond or uh, calcaneal apophysitis from the history alone? Is there ever imaging required? Are there special clinical yeah. tests? Um, you know, how would you sort of guide the, the, the undergrad or the non-experienced sort of paediatric practitioner into, into making those clinical decisions? I, I personally think most of our um, practice as a clinician is what we hear rather than what we touch or what we see. A great history from an individual, it will give you probably eight out of ten times a diagnosis or at least a working diagnosis to head towards. Um, so, look, I tend to go clinically. I can only name a couple of times that I've used imaging to diagnose calconeopophysitis, and most of those times it's an exclusion for some of the other more complex conditions that could be presented. Um, so no, what we know is that it will show up on an MRI, um, but what it won't show up is whether or not it's a painful, um, component of the condition. Um, it's not going to show necessarily on imaging that they're at a more painful period. Yes, they'll show you whether or not the growth plates open, but it doesn't actually show you where they're sitting within that process. Um, so no, I tend to do a medial lateral compression squeeze. I tend to take it based on history. I rule out things like your juvenile idiopathic arthritis or enthesiopathies, um, your fractures, your bone tumours. They're the ones that I'm looking for because at the end of the day, they're the ones that have the most disastrous outcome for, for a child and for that family. Um, People talk about using ultrasound if they're lucky enough to have a machine in clinic. It's not necessarily, once again, going to give you an answer that is reflective of the pain experienced. Yeah. yeah. So it comes back to history and, yeah. and examination. Yeah. Time and time again. Clear the um, red flags. Making a good history. Yeah. yeah. Using Correct. things like the P-Girls, the simple, easy assessments that, once again, it's you should be using every day anyway. Yeah. There was a... There's some sources that refer to it as an avascular necrosis. Um, yeah. Is that is that appropriate? Is that accurate? And if not, how, how would you best describe what it is? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an avascular avascular necrosis. We're not talking about a loss of blood supply to an area when we talk about a true cause of an avascular necrosis. Um, how do I describe it to a, a child in front of me? I often talk about um, their heel bone being in two, plate, two pieces like you have it as a growth plate and we get out the bones and we talk about how it's going to one day come together but each time they jump up and down, the either the force of the ground or the pull of the muscle makes it sore. Um, I think that's the nicest way of often explaining it to the little person in front of you because we can talk about it all day and have all these big terms, and but the little person is actually who you're caring the most about. Um, so it's your ability to communicate in a layman's term. We know in Australia we've got a health literacy rate of somewhere around a grade five level, so that's a 10 or 11-year-old. Um, so assuming that, that they're going to have the understanding of what you're talking about, it isn't going to be there necessarily. Sure. I, I often think back, you know, think about, you know, what is it? I often think back, I think it was 2004 or around 2005, I think it was from France, a, a paper that said it was a stress fracture. 
of yep. the metaphysis. And I remember thinking about it at the time. I thought, well, even if it wasn't a stress fracture, it's actually a nice way to think about it. Let's pretend it is a stress fracture and manage it like a stress fracture. Um, now, whether it is or is, I don't, I don't actually know, but I don't know what yes. your thoughts are on that. Is, is it a stress fracture of the metaphysis? Um, oh, do I think it's a fracture? Probably not. Do I think it's a reaction to forces and to stress placed of an area? Sure. sure yeah. Yes. Um, but I think I think the terminology fracture for a child they associate yep. with it being broken. Um, I like to always pull it back to the person in front of me. Um, but yeah, it, we know that the stress or the strain that you place on that area causes more pain for the individual. So how as long as we can pl- explain it that way, it's not a bad way of saying it. Yeah, well, I used to like pretending it was one and treat it like it was one, and yep. you know, it made a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, at the time, I mean, but that, God, that was. I'm sure mid 2000s. I mean, it was a long time ago yeah. that 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 paper. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think we truly know what actually is happening in the sense of um, what is the cause. I think we've we've kind of moved to the treatment phase because um, we know it's a self-limiting condition, um, and we know that the outcomes is long, um, is not looking long-term negative out- impacts for the child. Now, you might know where I'm heading with this question, but mm. inflammation. Yes. Uh, we know there's a supplement that's widely touted for it that has extremely mild anti-inflammatory effects and nothing else, but I've mm. never considered inflammation playing a very big role in it. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Oh, look, I wouldn't say visual swelling. If, if you see visual swelling with calcaneopophysitis, I'd actually say it's not concur- <laughs> oh, it's not calcaneopophysitis. Start thinking thesiopathies. Um, what we do know from some of the studies is that there is an edema at that area. So whether or not we're talking about inflammation or we're talking about edema at the bone level, um, I think there's two different things to talk about there. When we start talking about supplements, um, my thing would be, is there a component of placebo there in any component, at any point? It's such a mild anti-inflammatory, but then we still get a child to use ice. Um, are we also, and I do too, I use ice quite a lot. And is that the placebo we're talking about is the fact we're getting some pain relief um, as well from an ice. I don't necessarily think any of them are bad, but as long as you've explained to the person in front of you what you're trying, what the outcome is. Yeah, but I, I just on the ice, is, is that not a do-something-ism? Yeah. Um, because if, if the uh, apophysitis is deep inside the bone, there's no way the ice is going to affect that. Um, but again, for those of you who are not familiar, the supplement that I was alluding to, I'll name it, it's called OSCON, O-S-C-O-N. It's a widely touted supplement for severs. Um, there is a website widely promoting it with an extraordinary number of testimonials. Absolutely amazing. I've even had um, hate mail for saying something negative about it from a mother who's fixed to her daughters. But again, placebo, natural history, um, Mm. supplement does have extraordinarily mild anti-inflammatory effects. And if you look at their website, they claim that calcane lipophysitis is, is inflammatory. But if it was, NSAIDs would work really well. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's often it. We talk about whether or not you would be, if you have your endorsement in Australia, you can use things like NSAIDs. And whether or not you would use it with calcane lipophysitis, I, I, ha- I haven't. I've used pain relief um, post an activity. Um, but I wouldn't say I've used an NZ actively to manage calcaneal popositis. Yeah. No, it's like a lot of things. We're trending towards talking about management here, which is obviously yeah. always the way, we, always the way we were going to go. Um, and 
we've had a few questions coming in beforehand about management, so mm. we'll try and sort of break them down into, into individual components. Um, the textbook way that we were taught in the UK sort of 18 years ago was sporty kid comes in, 10 years old, growth spurt at the same time as mm. increasing activity. Bones grow quicker than soft tissues, so bones grow, soft tissues are left tight and, and um, therefore we get this sort of equinus at the ankle. Therefore, what we need to do is several things. Stretching of the posterior muscles, icing locally, and then things like heel raises or foot orthoses. So obviously we need to break these down and talk about them individually. Um, first of all, can we just quickly talk about the, the presence or not of ankle equinus? Um, because yes. obviously in one of those studies that you published, um, there wasn't actually that much uh, equinus noted in the cohorts of, of children, mm. whereas in obviously a lot of other studies and, and historical sort of learning for all of us, we would make that assumption that there would be. Could you just explain what, what what's going on there and why the difference between your research and, and other work? Yeah, look, my thing would be, I was quite, quite surprised about it too when it came out. I was assuming that and I had always been treating with a, a stretch, not post an active phase. Um, it was even within our trial protocol. And we, and kind of, so it completely threw us around what we were ex- expecting to see. But I think what we were probably one of the earlier ones to use to standardise measure um, and to use something that had validated norms for children. Um, so here we were all expecting to have this 10 degrees of dorsiflexion that we were testing it however we were all individually testing it um but when we actually sat down and went right we're going to use a standardized measure we're going to make sure we've got normative values for kids and actually see if these kids are presenting with a restricted range of motion at their ankle joint because we're not talking about um whether or not they've got range of motion or we're talking about length of a muscle we're talking about at that particular joint what is the range of motion available at weight bearing um we were probably one of the early ones to also use a weight bearing measure um lots of people were using measures um or not really giving us an example of how they were even taking the measure they were just saying oh they've got 10 degrees of dorsiflexion or whatever magical number they've come up with um so what that one was probably why we were finding a difference um, and just encouraging people that while you may not may or may not be using a standard measure, just making sure that you're measuring it the same way each time the individual comes in is a starting point. It's just on the on the range of motion. I know in my lectures, when I go back and look what I used to teach on severs, mm. I always had the word you know, tight calf muscles. I always had a question mark after it. Yeah. But the reason I had a question mark there was you, you read quite regularly that tight calf muscles were common. Yes. But the data backing it up really wasn't there in any great depth. Yeah. But I also was concerned how much of it was splinting when you try and dorsiflex them, it hurts, so they don't let yeah. you. So was huh. there a, a false perception of the calf muscles being tight, therefore the false advice being given to stretch? I mean, that was the, the question mark I always had. But I think mm. you've answered that, you know. <laughs> yeah. And look, it's that moment of if you're in an acute phase of pain and then someone puts me into a position that brings on that pain, of course I'm not going to stretch as far as I actually can. Yeah. That's a, a complete normal response. Yeah. So what's the closing comment on stretching as a part of the management of calcaneal pophysitis? Are we to do it, to not do it? Is it helpful, harmful? Does it matter or not? What, what yeah. Yeah. My thing would be to make sure that you're not using the, the, the good old template or script that you've got. Actually assess the child. Make sure they've got range of motion that is normal or abnormal when you look at your um, 
normative values, then have a think about whether or not stretching does anything at all. Um, there's some really good, nice little Cochrane that's come out recently um, where, where, we're taught, where we're looking at the fact that there's not that great evidence for the outcomes of stretching. You're then going to implement a stretching program to a family that's struggling just to get to school on time, let alone brushing their teeth, and it's just another layer of complication. So if you don't think that they're that tight or that that is going to make an, out, an outcome significant for the individual why put another layer of stress for a family would be my statement to that i don't stretch anymore especially if i've done my normal ranges of motion and it's oh and it's coming back within normative values i then have more so have a look at the height and the weight of the individual um i think that's a component that's playing um a component was more so maybe more so in Australia. I don't know what's happening in the UK. I'm sorry, around our body weight and kids. Um, we've got some kids that are look, looking are on the heavier side of life at the moment. Um, so having some of those brave conversations with parents around um, watching body weight with kids is something quite important. Mm. Quite a confronting okay. conversation as a clinician to have and we're not one that would treat Absolutely. it, putting it out there. Um, we've got lots of referrals to happen from there. When it comes to um, managing load, I mean, Craig just talked about let's treat it like a stress stress fracture mm. or stress response. And in an adult, if we did that, one of the key components would be would be the load management, as it is of tendinopathy, etc. Yeah. Load management in kids is obviously potentially more challenging, but actually, as we've spoken about, mm. you know, offline, they're pretty good at, at self load management. Um, yes. I guess my the first question I want to ask is 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 there anything you actively advise or do you, do you just sort of let them guide the way? Or, and the second part is rest. Is it appropriate at, at certain times? And if so, when? Complete rest. Yeah. Look, I tend to find out what type of activities they're actually doing first because you've got the child that does one lots of sport for the day and that's it. Um, and you've got your little your budding athlete that's looking at five nights of training, two games on the weekend. They're the type of kids that you might have a conversation more so around load manage and load management. And then you've got the children that play nonstop in the playground at school. Their way to play um, and to engage is physically. Um, whether it be a little boy or a little girl, they might be the ones that climb the A-frames, that jump from the A-frame, and heaven forbid the heels get sore when you jump from a height. Um, it's figuring out where their actual pain is coming from and what particular activities. I don't tend to remove them completely from a sporting activity. I still send them along to training. They may not be actively participating in the running component, but they can still do ball work. They can do, do still do skill acquisition. Um, it's still keeping them engaged in the physical activity. Um, that becomes incredibly important. Most kids, if it's painful, will stop. Or you know what? They won't, but it'll be sore later. They're actually really good at understanding consequences themselves. Um, they're good at pulling things back. Um, but, yeah, my thing is figuring out, are they playing on an asphalt turf? Um, we're still playing now netball on asphalt in, in places within Australia. If, and then you look at your basketball stadiums, whether or not they've got a sprung floor. Um, whether or not my favourite one at the moment is the one from Sydney who's been playing in footy boots on an astroturf base. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me to be playing football in, in studs that are made for wet seasons on AstroTurf. That's just there's those common sense moments that we're missing or the family needs help finding is more so around you. That's how you get your load management. Yeah. I, I, I know, I mean, Alicia knows the story, but I, I never appreciated this whole concept of 
load management for it till my own daughter got the problem. And, you know, I've been teaching Sevism <laughs> forever and, and I did everything right to manage her. But no matter what I did, she still ran around the playground at school at lunchtime. No amount of pleading from me would stop her doing that. Um, and it never, you know, I, I'd done everything right. I did, I did everything I know I should have done. Um, the pain was so bad she would cry from it at times, but she would not stop running around with her friends at school. And I never really appreciated that whole load management side of the equation uh, until then. And I, I like to think I knew what I was doing, but, you know, obviously it really opened my eyes up. And also understanding from both the parent and the child's perspective how bad the actual pain is during activity. I think yeah. a parent will do anything for a child. Where That's the way we're wired. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually sit down, we use um, the Oxford Foot and Ankle Questionnaire and cl- Clinic and have a look at and put it in front of the parent and go, okay, so your child's only saying it's really mild or it's not really affecting them, but you're saying it's absolutely devastating because you guys are dealing with the consequences at six o'clock at night when you're trying to get dinner on and where everyone's crying and the world has changed and something else has gone down at school, but it's all catastrophized at that point in time. Um, so that's the bit you remember. They've moved on five minutes later. I've, I've actually scribbled down a couple of times to remind myself to ask you, and now feels like a good time. The, the, the ad, adult versus child and that what that note saying to me I mean, we could have we could be talking about when we the way we describe it the, the nocebic language the way we describe it how we manage it the load management the, but are we we're obviously treating children and I, in our pediatrics episode early on we asked this same question as well you know treating the child versus treating mm-hmm. the, the the adult so to speak Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, in your, from what you say, the adults are the ones probably at all stages through this that are, are more worried. Is that a fair comment? Look, I think it is. I think that no one likes to see their child in pain. Um, everyone likes to think that their child is going to be the next David Beckham or going to be the next <laughs> runner. And heaven forbid that they're not performing to their perceived best could be. Um, learning to child to learn how to load manage or to manage their own pain or to even consider that there's an injury at play is not a bad thing um we just want to make sure that they experience they have less pain and we manage symptoms to enable them to participate and that being the most important thing i don't think with calcopophysitis are you necessarily going to manage it and make them better i actually think that's the self-limiting nature of the condition as they grow um, I often get families coming and go, oh, well, it just flares up sometimes. Can you fix it? I can't fix it. I, we, it's a waiting game until that growth plate closes. But what we can do is make sure that, that it's manageable and they can continue to do what's important to them. Yeah. Yeah, about, sorry, here's one from left field. Um, yeah. I vaguely recall a couple of papers from China about surgically fusing the growth plate. Yeah, I saw that too and went, oh. <laughs> It's... And uh, I don't know, uh, parents get, it's an interesting conversation because when you think about if a child's had pain, some of our kids had had pain for th- going on three years that came into the study. Um, if you've had a child that's only 10 years of, well, eight, 11 years of age and had th- pain for three years of their life, it's a significant period of time, especially for a family member to watch them be in pain. So maybe they've headed down the surgical path because they've had, experienced it for a long time but maybe it's also that they don't have the adjunct therapies or the allied health professionals to help out and they've gone straight to a surgical option 
it's bizarre, but yeah. <laughs> I've seen mentioned. Um, I've seen mentioned in some places the the recommendation of shockwave therapy for calcaneal apophysitis. Now, to me, if we're talking about it like a stress response, I mean, that's certainly not something you do for a, for a stress fracture. I mean, good. Have you come across these recommendations and, and, and what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, look, it's something when you guys, um, I have to admit these guys gave me the heads up and we have seen one individual in clinic who has had it as a therapy. Um, it's something that we're seeing popped up, advertised on websites and I, I kind of sit back and challenge the thought process of what you're trying to achieve. Um, it's quite a painful experience. I haven't had it personally, but by reported and, and when you read it up, it seems to be quite painful. It's not something that I would probably advocate we would be doing one if we don't know what is the actual underlying cause of calcaneopophysis. We're kind of jumping to a, a therapy there that is quite painful and perceived to be quite invasive. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, if you wouldn't use it for a stress reaction and you wouldn't use it um, for a lot of other pathologies, it's not something I would be happy to be advocating for. And I have to admit, I get a bit grumpy when I get kids come in and talk about how painful it was. Um, I think it's an unnecessary evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about foot orthoses. Um, mm. You know, one of the, the mainstays I remember being taught, along with your stretching, your icing and, and things, is, is orthoses, or at least some, some form of in-shoe in intervention. Um, yeah. let's, let's talk about heel lifts in a second. Let's just talk, keep keeping orthoses prefabs, custom maids or, or actually just just heel lifts let's talk about it now where, where does the what does the current evidence tell us because certainly when you look back over the literature it's been pretty pro orthoses and i've certainly seen some that's referred to having to be custom made which is um, can be quite expensive for a growing child as well what is the current evidence base what is your latest work tell us about uh, best practice there um, oh, look, what we found in the evidence was that our prefab device was just as effective or, um, as a heel race, um, so that basically the need both had pain resolution with the interventions or had improved pain, um, so the need to jump to a custom orthotic probably isn't there um, if you can get the, intervent get the same outcome with a prefab device. Um, it then comes down to whether or not we're going to think about the costs for families um, and then we're going to think about um, the outcome that we're trying to achieve. If a child grows outgrows a device really, really quickly, um, a family member is probably going to be a lot happier knowing that it's a cheaper device to replace on a more readily or a more often basis. That said, that using your clinical knowledge, using your clinical skills and having a look at the foot posture and having the individual in front of you, if a custom-made device is where it ends up going, it doesn't necessarily make it a wrong decision. It isn't just that the evidence right now isn't in front of you to support it being your first-line therapy. That would, yeah. If, if you've got the child with a FPI of plus 12 and the orthotic, the prefab device isn't going to be enough support, then it makes sense to jump to it, but I wouldn't use it as a first-line therapy. Now, I recall uh, uh, witnessing a, a discussion online about the height of heel raises used. Um, <laughs> is, is there any, I think it was a six mil versus eight mil debate with you and um, it may have been Miley, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, she stole them all. I didn't know they still existed. <laughs> <laughs> they all, they all 
desk apparently is is there a i mean are we are we we know that we don't have to be super prescriptive with these things in, in no. a lot of cases so there's an envelope of success so is it reasonable that for most children if you pop in a six mil hill raise that's a pretty good starting point or are there any clinical tests that can guide the the sort of decision of that height a bit more accurately to, to be honest it was what was readily available um rather than making them them yourself on the grinder um we used the six mil well i thought we were all using the six mil um heel lift in my <laughs> clinic um but apparently someone had a stash of eight mils um and then the question around i'm more so interested in how regularly you replace the heel lifts that's the biggest downfall i think in our study was that we didn't replace the heel lifts after a period of time the compression component um making sure that while com while the compression probably helps with not ensuring you don't end up with something like an aquinas heaven forbid the, the horrible aquinas that people rate and rave around um but yeah i think that's probably replacing that the heel raise on a more regular basis becomes an important component of your therapy and probably means you're going to have more success with it um in the sense of offloading that area um, but do I think there needs to be a set amount? Probably not, but making sure that it's an even amount. I, what you put into the left, put into the right, um, rather than leaving them unbalanced. If you want to start hitting up between a one, one centimetre, it does make a difference in giving them a leg length discrepancy. Um, it's not something I'd probably want to be doing. It's kind of like putting a body kind of right You'd always give bilateral heel raises um, regardless, I assume. Yeah, I, I do. I know, yeah, yeah. That, that would be yeah. my statement. We've had a couple come in and you kind of look and go, I probably do both. Let's keep you even and see how we go. Yeah, great. Um, where, where does footwear come into the discussion? Obviously, it's going to be sports specific, but yeah. um, the, the daily footwear, you know, the, the one that they're in for eight hours, nine hours a day at school. I mean, do you find yourself having a lot of battles there? Um, and, 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 is there a sort of is there a perfect shoe that could do it all for us in theory? It's it's an interesting one. We we did have a look at footwear and we actually didn't find a difference between those that got given and we were really really Adidas Australia were incredibly generous, gave us a stack load of shoes to put on these children, and unfortunately for them, it didn't show that it was any better um, for a child that was given a new runner. But what we didn't consider was the fact that a lot of the parents go and buy the purchase new shoes because they've done some googling. Um, and found that the recommendation is to put a nice footwear, nice pair of footwear on. I think you've hit the nail on the head as being specific for the activity. Um, I then come back to schools and often say they do so much running around at lunchtime and playtime. The standard Oxford school shoe, I don't think, has the role, in, especially in those younger children. It might, in the sense of your older, um, your older teenager that doesn't really want to be outside at lunchtime playing, but then you've got your basketball kids that are doing they're almost adults by the time they're 12 13 14 these males are start, they're heading towards being adults you want to put them in a shoe that is supportive um, and is going to respond to the asphalt that they're likely to be playing on i tend to put most of my kids in a runner um, a lot of our primary school a lot of our local government primary schools these days are, are happy for our children to be in runners at school um, it means they don't need to swap in and out of shoes it's one less cost for a family um, and they're perhaps even get a lot, little bit longevity out of them as well. Right. Kids aren't dragging their right. toes along with, school, along with the with the leather, black leather they don't like to wear. Yeah. Um, 
personal question. You met, you know, we know it, we refer to it as a self-limiting condition. Yes. Um, what, uh, what sort of timelines are we talking? Have we got any data on that? Obviously all the things we're doing, I know Craig often likes the phrase, these are the things we do to keep people occupied while the body does its thing, you know? Um, yes. Yeah. What, what are the timelines of this if, if there was no intervention? Do we have such data? Um, we do know that, um, that as the growth plate opens earlier in puberty, so you know that girls, we know that girls go through puberty earlier than boys do. We know that they tend to have calcaneal pophysitis a year or two, a year and a half, a year before um, our males, um, kids that are presenting to the clinic. Makes sense that, that, that it then goes through on the, other, on the tail end, meaning that boys are generally a little bit older as their growth plate closes. Um, so we would expect them to see... Um, then having calcane pophysitis or the closure happening around that tail end of 13, 14 um, happening. Do we, I would like to think that they, it's about an 18 months, but we know from the study that we had kids that were in pain for three years. Um, so I, I don't think there's a definite time period. I think it's sometimes having that conversation around puberty. We didn't include it within our study. Um, I know we had a couple of people that were really keen for us to, to head down that pathway and think about how puberty was affecting it. Um, I was a little bit nervous about having those conversations, probably a little bit more grown up now, um, and would have it comfortably with a parent. Um, but back then I was a little bit nervous about, about engaging some of our families. Actually, just on that, I, I can tell you in my daughter's case, it, it was it, it, she actually hurt her hip and ended up on crutches for three months. The severs came right in about a month. So total, total non-weight bearing, it was about a month and it was all gone. Um, we didn't have to worry about the hip. But just on that, we've just had a question, and, and, I, and I, can never, I can never tell who this is. It's either Catherine or Stuart. They have the same account. Um, but one of them has asked, um, are there any return to sport guidelines for these children? My thing was I haven't taken them out of sport. I've tried to leave them in as much as they can, whether it's just that they're playing a quarter of the netball rather than the full game. I try to enable them to place at something. Um, I think it's really important to keep them with their peers. Um, I tend to ask them to to play to a point of a pain level that they, they can't handle anymore, they're not comfortable. What we tend to find out of 10 or a faces pain scale at what point does it hit this face what point does it hit this face and the aiming to keep it below that that five level or that or that middle of the range um do i then the thing is that if you allow them to participate more they will have more pain i think measuring that pain becomes more so important than anything else if you allow them if you fix or if you fix if you make it feel a little bit better you play harder that is just the natural course of a child. Um, so don't perceive that they're not getting better. The question is how much more sport are they, are they able to play in? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, Stuart's just replied it was him, so hi, Stuart. <laughs> but I, I guess that raises the question that sort of Ian started alluding to before about you know, I'm with you, I've never tried to stop them, I've always tried to cut back, and, and I think it's important that they stay involved with the team. But it's the, the question is sort of, should we even try and treat it? Should we just try and control it until it naturally goes away? I, I think that's kind of what we're doing. Yeah. I think we're just controlling the pain and enabling them to participate and to continue on what, with what's important to them. Yeah. Um, I don't think we are ever, and I don't know when you said that before, Craig, it, yeah. the, the heel pain magically went away. I went, yeah, I wonder if it was going to go away anyway. Well, that's the other point too. 
Um, what about yeah. the, and I, I know I've done this twice in my career, I've actually put them in a, a walking splint. Yep. Out of, desperation, out of desperation, just to stop them from, yep. I, don't, I don't know whether the splint helped or not, but it stopped them participating in the activity. <laughs> when you've got to do it, you've got to do it. But have you ever done that? I, I put someone in a, just a, 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 a ankle cam boot um, just to manage the pain and the symptoms that they're experiencing, um, mainly because the individual also refused to put their heel on the ground for out of fear of pain. So it was more so managing the pain or the fear of pain and then getting their heel down slowly with heel raises within the within the within the um, cam walker, then moving them into a shoe with the heel raises. I think it was more so managing the psychological perception of what the pain was impacting than actually the pain that they were experiencing. Um, little people, whether or not they end up with some of the um, more serious pain, ongoing pain conditions is what you're trying to avoid. Um, we've been asked this question. I'm always embarrassed to ask it. It's a horrible question to ask when someone like yourself has dedicated so much, so many hours and years to, to understanding this. And then someone comes along and, and asks, um, is there just, is there a paper I can read that will just get me up to speed on this whole topic? I mean, I guess your PhD would be, your PhD would be one of them. I know that you, you have published a lot of papers in this area. I know that between um, you and Kylie, you did that brilliant infographic. Mm, that um, was going to be my suggestion. It, just the infographic. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. Obviously, we can we can link to that under this video yeah. and things. But I mean, um, yeah, there, are there a couple of papers that people can read and really get up to speed with the, the nuts and bolts of everything we've been saying tonight? Yeah, this look, morning, there's, yeah, there's a couple of papers that are that are out there that more than happy to send through. Craig's probably already got them. It, there's there's a couple out. Um, for Hamry, he's done some interesting study, interesting work. Rolf um, in out of University of South Australia pre my work did some great work as well. Um, there probably needs to be a, here I go, dobbing yourself in here, there probably does need to be some kind of literature or narrative pulling it all together because um, there's been some publications since the last one has come out. Um, there's some great work coming out of Queensland um, QUT that they're going to continue the um, calcaneal apophysitis journey for us. So they should be pu putting out some things shortly as well. Um, oh, there we go. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I'm more than happy, more than happy to send those through, load them all up, um, and yeah, any anyone want to send through some questions, happy to take them as well. That's not a problem either. That'd be perfect. We um, James has just mentioned that the infographic is on your Podo Pediatric Special Advisory Group page, and actually, that's it's a pretty reasonable time to plug that. Actually, if anyone's watching who is interested in paediatrics or i mean i don't see peds but i'm a member of that group and i probably learn more from that group than, than any other group on, on on facebook so yeah do you, yeah, do you have to um yeah it's not an open page you have to request to be a member i believe do you i believe so i think james is the keeper of all secrets there um i yeah i'll be maybe honest he on that. maybe <laughs> he can post a link to that group and underneath this as well and, and hopefully yeah. people can join join that group because i know there's some incredibly good discussions on on this um on this topic and others there um craig anything else you want to talk about anything else that's coming no, i, I think mind. that's um yeah there's there's the group <laughs> um great I think we've covered, I think, and I've said this to Alicia before, when when I was teaching at the, at the uni, you know, you look every year you get your lectures ready and, and SEVIS was one of those topics that I almost never updated because there was never nothing to update it with. 
Mm. Um, but a lot has happened in recent years, and I, I fully acknowledge that now because we went for a very, very long time with, you know, it was nothing was really changing, nothing in our understanding or, or management, but certainly a lot has changed um, yeah. in the last five five or so years, but obviously based on a lot of your work. Yeah, and look, I think the challenge to any, any clinician that, I mean, we often hear this, why change if what I'm doing is working well? Um, my challenge to those individuals is keeping up keeping relevant because your patient is incredibly savvy. The mums have already Googled before they walk through the door. If there's a paper or an infographic, they've probably read it. Um, Doing what you've always done just because you think it works is not necessarily keeping you relevant and to to be the best individual you could be as a clinician. But that doesn't also mean if you don't change, you don't do better. No, that's exactly um, actually, I mean, there's still a lot of unanswered questions, and I know, again, at least we've had this conversation before about is it impact-related or is it strain-related from the Achilles? Yeah. Um, there's still a lot we don't know. Uh, yeah. It would be nice to have an answer to that one because... No pressure to the guys in Queensland. Yeah, because if it was impact-related, <laughs> if it's impact-related, we just get everyone four-foot striking. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a few concerns there, but oh, sure. <laughs> well, we'll give more med- metatarsal stress fractures or something, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. for, for me, yeah, I, I, sorry, yeah. go on, carry on. No, 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 I was just going to say, but I, it, I can only hope that someone comes out with even better ideas and that the stuff that we've done becomes irrelevant. That is the that is the ultimate, is that the next generation comes through and finds something better for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, the take-homes I've, I've taken from this talk, and also I, I listened to your talk in um, Craig's, Craig's online 24-hour conference, mm. was you need to take an incredibly good history. You need yes. to do an incredibly good examination. You need to clear the red flags. And yeah. once you're in that ballpark, if they're in good shoes with heel raises and you've just ploughed them with a, the appropriate education, mm. parents and child, you're probably going to be okay. Um, you know, stretching, icing, uh, they're all kind of maybe might not do any harm, but they're, like you say, they're, they're not really the keystones that I was taught they were 18 years ago. Yeah. Is that summary? Am I, am, I, am I on point there? I think you, you, that's exactly right. And I think expecting them to be returning probably in a three or a six-month period, I often say to families, before you come back, make sure that you haven't jumped back into your Dunlop volleys. Have a, have a look. Do you need your heel raises replaced before? They're easy, quick wins that the families could be doing before they come back. Because um, I, I honestly, I call it a bit of a roller coaster. I explain as a roller coaster to parents is that we go through these really bad periods. They come good for a while. We forget what we're meant to have been doing. They play a little bit harder. They go back and train five or six nights a week. And then of course the pain comes back. I think, you will see them two or three times before the pain is completely resolved. Great. And it's just managing that. Great. Well, I think that's probably a good time to, to finish. So thanks so much, Alicia. Um, sorry, sorry, everyone who was waiting live. We were a bit late started due to technical problems. Um, obviously, most people in Australia, I see quite a few Australians joining just in the last 10 minutes. So this will the whole thing will be live uh, rendered and be available to watch we'll have it on youtube later but i am extraordinarily impressed just how many people from the uk have been watching um <laughs> didn't you guys know that england's playing in footy football tonight 
And if you didn't, they're up one nil. Um, <laughs> oh, great. Okay. No spoilers, I'm recording it. <laughs> oh, sorry, Ian. <laughs> I said half time, so who knows what's going to happen in the second half. So, again, thanks so much, Alicia. It's, yeah, again, I, I think it's going to be valuable for her to watch. And um, thanks, Ian. My dogs are just starting to bark and make noises, so I think that's a good time to get off. So, thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you.